Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can meet together this evening, that you have blessed us in the first half of this week, that you have heard the prayers of your people, O God, and granted uh, peace and uh, answers to those prayers. We're thankful, O God, for the ways that you have helped and supported our brothers and sisters in many trials. And we pray that you would be with many who do sorrow and grieve even now. And for those who will be traveling and for those who are recovering from medical procedures, for those who are dealing with ongoing illness and pain, we pray that your blessing would be upon each one of your children according to their particular needs and that you would strengthen and support and sanctify them even through and by means of these trials. We do thank you, O God, that we meeting together tonight can take up uh, strong hymns and uh, pray and sing together as brothers and sisters in your family. We're thankful that we can open your word and we pray that as we do so, your spirit would minister grace to our hearts, opening our eyes and increasing our understanding and deepening our joy in your truth and promises. We thank you for our children and for our children's children. We thank you, O God, for the pardon of our sins, for the freedoms that we enjoy for the prosperity that we often take for granted. We thank you for the blessings that we have never thought to count and uh, to return thanks to you for. And we pray that you would help us daily to be more mindful of your presence and your goodness in each of our lives. Bless us tonight. Help us to be attentive to your word, to rightly divide and rightly apply it. Oh God, make us gracious, cheerful, and militant as your servants in this world, we pray in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. So you have a handout tonight. It's not one page front and back as it's been the last couple of weeks. It's actually seven pages. And we're going to do our best to get through as much of it as we can this evening. But this is one of those places in our plan of study where, as I mentioned before, we might have to extend some portions over more than one week. There might be other portions of the study that we're able to combine together. Uh, I've given you that outline generally of our plan a couple of weeks ago. Tonight, as we talk about uh, the case for an optimistic eschatology, we want to suggest that an optimistic view of the end times and of the future is, in fact, supported by a straightforward reading of many Old Testament prophecies. Now, I want to talk for just a minute about what we even mean in saying that and how we ought to approach interpretation of the Scriptures. And then I want to just give you some representative samples from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, and particularly from the Psalms and the Prophets. And we'll talk about why more so there in just a minute. But first we need to talk about how we are going to approach interpreting Scripture. Interpretation is both necessary and inevitable. Any act of reading involves interpretation. Sometimes more fundamentalist-oriented Christians will deny that Scripture has to be interpreted at all. It just means what it means. It says what it says. But, But hopefully we recognize that the very act of reading words upon a page requires us to interpret them. Otherwise, it's just gibberish. And certainly when we're dealing with a text that was originally written in one or two other languages and has now been translated into our own language, every act of translation from one source language to a target language is an act of interpretation and requires further interpretation to be made of the content of that language uh, when it is either read or heard. Now, many times people who major in eschatology, and we're thinking specifically right now about proponents of dispensationalism, many times 
American evangelical Christians will say, Scripture ought to be interpreted literally. And I would say, yes, depending on what you mean. After all, if I say that it's raining cats and dogs outside, and you look up and say, I don't see any puppies and kittens, I literally mean that it's raining really hard. But I mean that, and I'm communicating that meaning by means of symbolic or figurative language. So if you mean that Scripture should be interpreted seriously, that it should be taken seriously, that the statements that it makes actually mean something, that they're not just subject to whatever the reader might choose to believe from it, well, then then yes, I would agree with that. But if you mean that we ought to interpret Scripture in a wooden, literalistic fashion, then I would say, first of all, that approach to the interpretation of Scripture is nowhere taught anywhere in Scripture. It's not the way that the apostles read the Old Testament, and that's very plain. We can see in the New Testament how the inspired apostles interpreted inspired texts. Uh, Secondly, we would say that that approach to interpretation has never been the view of the church at any point in her history. And that argues strongly against it being the proper mode of interpretation if we've only just lately discovered it in the Western world. And then third, I would say that when we look at Scripture, we see that Scripture itself is not written to be interpreted in that way, and that even the most die-hard advocates of literal interpretation realize that. No one is consistent in applying across the board, in every case, in every passage, a literal paradigm of interpretation. You can see this. I graduated from a premillennial seminary. I did my undergraduate work at a very strongly dispensational premillennial school. And when you read commentaries and when you read the best academic theological writing of proponents of those systems, there are still many passages that they come to and have to say, this is figurative or this is symbolic. We can't take this literally, but we have to take this other statement or image literally. And so there doesn't seem to be very obvious controls upon what we interpret literally and what we do not. The fact is that Scripture clearly is full of metaphor and simile and various types of figurative language. And to take Scripture seriously, we have to take that into account. Now, I would say that if we take a straightforward reading of the biblical text, we're allowing for metaphor, we're allowing for symbology, but we are recognizing that, generally speaking, the meaning of Scripture is fairly plain to a believer who reads it. Now, that doesn't mean that every passage is equally clear. That doesn't mean that we will not have many questions that remain. But generally speaking, if you want to know what the Bible means then just simply read what it says. And you might have to read it several times. You might have to stretch your brain a little bit. You might have to study and, and pour over it. But, but you can generally understand what Scripture means simply by reading what it says. In fact, I think one of the great barriers to, under, to, to, to understanding prophecy in Scripture is the many kinds of teaching that have often substituted for simply reading the Bible. I've had so many people who come to me and say, I want to understand the book of Revelation. And, and I've, I have literally had people tell me when I ask them, well, have you read the book of Revelation? They say, no, I'm afraid to. 
well, how do you expect it? Well, I'm, I'm listening to this or that series online, or I'm, I'm, I'm reading this, this person's commentary. And it's like, well, if you, want to, if you want to understand Revelation, a great place to start might be reading Revelation and reading it several times and reading it at one sitting and trying to get the big picture before you start trying to pour over books and resources that are intended to help you understand what you haven't even read. If you want to understand the Bible, then you need to read the Bible. In fact, this is Paul's promise in one sense. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, by which when you read his writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit he's talking about, he says, by which when you read, you can understand my knowledge into the mystery of Christ. That's why the Bible was written, so that you could understand so that you could possess knowledge concerning the mystery of Christ, concerning the revealed will of God and the glory of God and the purpose of God. So when we talk about a straightforward reading, we're not talking about a woodenly literalistic reading. We're talking about taking the Bible seriously and taking it in a fairly simple manner, taking it in a believing manner, believing that it is in fact the word of God. It's not a word of man about God rather than, uh, you know, kind of going through hermeneutical gymnastics and very complex, fanciful readings by which we're trying to explain why the Bible doesn't actually mean what it seems to say, we should simply take up the Bible and read it with the expectation that the same Holy Spirit who gives us faith is going to enable us to understand what he has written in God's word. And that doesn't mean that our private reading of it is infallible. That doesn't mean that we should hold ourselves aloof from uh, other Christian teachers or the Christian uh, church understood historically as she has read the Bible for many, many centuries now. It doesn't mean that we should be unteachable. But it does mean that we should have an expectation that if I'm reading the Bible as a believer and I'm paying attention to the way in which things are said, and I'm paying attention to the images that are used and the obvious symbols and figures, and if I'm allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, then then I will be able not to settle every question, not to answer every issue, but I will be able to attain to a sufficient understanding of God's Word, even concerning things that are future. Now, there are many promises and prophecies in the Old Testament whose interpretations are highly disputed. And I am not going to try to get into most of those passages tonight. I realize in one sense, every passage that I cite is one that would be disputed by someone who subscribes to a different eschatological school. Right? But, but I'm ta- I've got in mind passages that are so hotly contested that really there cannot be almost any consensus about what the text says apart from an interpretation of what it means for a particular eschatological position. And those are not the passages, by and large, that I'm going to look at tonight. I will acknowledge that there are a number of those passages that could be reconciled with a historic premillennial or an amillennial view. I am not persuaded that there is any passage in the Bible that reasonably can be reconciled to a dispensational premillennial view. But that's, that's a pretty big, bold claim, and that's a, that's a big question, uh, and I'm going to just set it aside for tonight. Uh, I will say that I, I have friends who are historic premillennialists, and I think they are reading the Bible in good faith, and I think they have good arguments that they can make from particular passages for why they draw the conclusions that they do. And the same thing with regard to my amillennial friends, among whom for many, many years I numbered myself. But what I do want to suggest is that as we walk through the Bible and tonight through the Old Testament, you 
I think we'll begin to see that there is a particular tone and a particular trajectory and an overwhelming consistency to the kinds of promises that Scripture is making about the future of this present world. Not some future world. Not the new heavens and earth in their consummation. But this present world. And tonight, rather than doing a deep dive on any particular passage, I do want to try to overwhelm you to some extent with just the general weight of evidence in favor of that. Now we're going to start with some of the historical books of the Old Testament, but we are going to focus our time on the Psalms and the Prophets. And the reason for that is, not surprisingly, the Psalms and the prophetic literature of the Old Testament is where you primarily have prophecies about the future. You're not going to expect to find that in the historical narratives of the patriarchs and of Israel. You you do have some indications of it, no doubt, but much of the historical literature in the first half of the Old Testament is just that. It's just historical narrative. But when you get into the Psalms, you are singing the songs of Israel and you are offering her prayers for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you get into the prophets, they are proclaiming things that are yet to come. And in many cases, that concerns the future of this present world. I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. Many of these passages I'm not going to read. I'm going to simply refer to. I've printed a lot of them on your notes, which is one of the reasons your handout is larger tonight than it has been in previous weeks. But let me point out a couple of passages, a few verses from Genesis 1 and 2, as we think about the original mission that God gives to humanity. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man, male and female, is made as God's image to be Lord over creation. To exercise dominion. That's a godly dominion. That is not the kind of dominion that is abusive, that is wasteful, that is destructive to the world. On the contrary... Man is to be the strong man who protects creation from the abuses of it and from destruction concerning it. In verse 31 of that same chapter, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. You've heard this echo through the creation week. God makes something and he looks at it. There's evening, there's morning and it's good. And now at the close, at the climax of the week, God sees that creation is very good. And then in chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, to cultivate and guard it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, of every, tree of, the knowledge, uh, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now my question is, when Adam ate that fruit in disobedience to God's will, did that change God's view of the fundamental nature of creation? Did God decide the world was very good a moment ago and now it is no longer good and never again can be? And and not, not denying that sin is a terrible thing, not denying that the curse that God places upon the world 
has brought great suffering uh, into this world, but, but did God decide that now he has changed his mind, he is going to abandon this project, and he is going to destine creation for annihilation? Does God uh, relinquish his commitment to the creation mandate, to the dominion mandate that he had assigned to humanity in chapter 1? Or does God recognize that the fall is part of his plan for the world, having ordained it as he did all things before he began the world? In other words, the fall doesn't take God by surprise, and God does not merely believe that creation is fundamentally good for just the five minutes of creation prior to Adam and Eve's fall. He recognizes the essential goodness, the basic, to speak philosophically, the basic goodness of creation. He recognizes the mission that he has given to man, and the fall doesn't change either of those things. These are issues that help us identify creation's eschatological trajectory. And it it keeps us, hopefully, from an eschatological viewpoint that essentially says, creation bad and heaven good. Material evil, spiritual is righteous. And that ultimately, the world's future and and the believer's hope is to escape the present world and to see God destroy it. The creation mandate that God gives to Adam in Genesis 1 is reaffirmed explicitly after the flood in Genesis chapter 9. And I believe there is a straight line from the creation mandate in Genesis 1 to its reaffirmation in Genesis 9, to the promises God made to Abraham, to Israel, to David, and finally to the Lord's Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. After all, what is the Great Commission? It is simply a retooling, a restatement of this original dominion mandate. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, Now, what is that? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Those four steps of the dominion mandate are simply a proto-commission prior to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. What's the goal of this dominion order? Is it simply to reproduce human beings and fill the earth with biological creatures? Is the intention merely to ensure that the human species will survive Or is there any spiritual or saving aspect to this role? Uh, You might remember, if you watched the Bonson Conference, that I asked one of the speakers this question in the Q&A after his lecture. And he affirmed, in his view, that the creation mandate being fulfilled by Christ actually only has the purpose for the rest of humanity to ensure biological reproduction. And I said, do you mean by that that... The creation mandate would essentially intend to fill the world with unbelievers. And he said, yes. Okay, so that's one view of what God's doing here. I would suggest to you there's another way of thinking about God's purpose. Some believe that the dominion mandate is so entirely fulfilled by the work of Christ that it doesn't really have any application to the church or to the believers today. Now, is the dominion mandate fulfilled by the work of Jesus? Of course. Of course. He is the man, the last Adam, who is the true Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. I don't. You don't. 
Creation is subject to Jesus Christ. It is not subject to me. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus gives His disciples this same mission. Go into all the world. Fill it. Reproduce. Multiply. How? By conversion. By baptism. And by discipling. Make the nations followers of Jesus and teach them to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? That's subduing the earth. Now, when Adam and Eve fall, we have in the fall the first statement of the gospel, what's often called the Proto-Evangelium. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who, who do you want to be in that particular exchange, right? You get, to, you get to wound me in the heel and I get to wound you in the head. I like that trade. Now, I want you to notice that in that promise, there is nothing about the forgiveness of your sins. Now, the forgiveness of your sins is obviously part of the gospel. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to deny that. In fact, the Lord deals with Adam and Eve's sins immediately after this by means of a sacrifice. He clothes them with animal skins. And then he puts them outside of the garden, even as we talked about on Sunday morning for a little while. So it's not that the forgiveness of sins is irrelevant, but in the promise, the first gospel promise found in your Bible, where is the focus? The focus is upon the seed of the woman destroying the serpent and his offspring. In other words, the product of the evil one, the product of the rebellion. God is going to send through the woman a Savior who will crush the head of that serpent and overcome his diabolical work. As we continue through the book of Genesis, we see God dealing with Abraham, who becomes the father of the faithful and making certain promises that are going to be very important in the outworking of both the original dominion mandate as well as in this promise about the overcoming of the serpent and his evil. In Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, Yahweh had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name uh, great, and you shall be a blessing. To who? Keep reading. I will bless those who bless you, And I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All families of the earth? I thought it was only going to be a a remnant. I thought it was going to be a select few. I thought it was going to be a few representatives, maybe from each nation. But now the Lord is promising to Abraham that the work he is going to do through Abraham is going to bring blessing upon all families of the earth. In chapter 17, as he continues to reveal this covenant and what it means, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, what's the significance of that? Just multiplication of the Jewish people? That's the way a lot of people read that. That's not the way the New Testament reads it. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he says there's no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You're all one in Christ. And you are Abraham's seed. 
If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. And heirs according to the promise. What promise? This promise that I will bless you, I will multiply you, and I will make you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So when the Lord says, I will multiply you exceedingly in Genesis 17, understand that's not talking about biological reproduction. That's talking about Abraham being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it by means of being the father of all who believe. The father of the faithful, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. The father of the circumcised who believe, as well as the father of the uncircumcised who believe. He says, verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. We're not talking about a handful of people. We're not talking about someone here and there. We are talking about many nations, all the families of the earth, ultimately coming to be blessed through relation to Abraham. And how is that relationship established? The New Testament says it is through faith. And then in chapter 22, when Abraham famously offers up his son Isaac to the Lord, in verse 15 it says, The angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall cower behind their gates because the orcs beyond are so numerous. Now, if that's what your Bible says in Genesis 22 and verse 17, you need a different Bible. Like, you have some kind of weird study version that is not remotely accurate. He says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Optimistic eschatology. It is not one kind of weird, older way of reading the book of Revelation. It's not this kind of strange failure to appreciate the literary motifs and metaphors of poetic language in the Psalms. It's the explicit outworking of the dominion mandate, the first gospel promise, and God's covenant with Abraham. There is nothing here that is remotely compatible with a pessimistic eschatology. Now, I'm not saying that in order to have an optimistic eschatology, you have to uh, uh, agree with me or anyone else on exactly what the millennium is going to look like or how it's going to come about or how long it's going to take. Or like We could disagree on all kinds of those questions. But our perspective should be one of optimistic expectation. God is going to fill the world with who? The offspring of Abraham. They will be like the sand of the seashore. They will be like the stars of the sky. Or as John says in the Revelation, more than you can count. And they will not only fill the earth, they will subdue it. In what way? They will possess the gate of their enemies. What did Jesus say when he promised to build the church in Matthew chapter 16? He said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. You do realize that he's echoing the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. Well, at least you realize it now. He is restating the promise to Abraham. And the promise here is going to be fulfilled through that new covenant church that will take possession of the enemy's gate. In other words, the church will have the enemy surrounded, not the other way around. And in verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed 
because you have obeyed my voice. All families of the earth will be blessed. All nations of the earth will be blessed. And if you think that that looks like a handful of elect people in each nation, then I would suggest that is not the straightforward reading of the text. This is not about rescue. This is about dominion. This is not about pulling a handful of people out. This is about taking possession of creation and making all things good. Now, in order to hasten on, let me point out that God's relationship with Israel, and I realize I'm I'm skipping over vast swaths of text, but but what I'm hoping that you will see is Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, Christ. Right, this basic covenantal outline of, of redemptive history and optimism and eschatological expectation connects every one of these various moments on the timeline. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God gives uh, abundant blessings and promises to Israel as well as some terrifying curses. This is by no means the only passage like this. In fact, there are several passages like this in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This is just one of the clearer ones. The Lord has made a special relationship with Israel. There are certainly unique aspects to that. I am not suggesting that any other nation is a chosen nation in the same way that Old Testament Israel was. It simply is not. And anyone who thinks that America occupies that place or, uh, you know, uh, the British Empire occupied that place, that's that's just absolutely irreconcilable with the biblical data. Right? Scripture says that Israel had a unique place in the plan of God, a unique role in the plan of God. But Scripture also tells us some things about the law that God gave to Israel that was to be a a witness to all of the other nations around them, that was to be an example, a model of justice and righteousness that all of the nations would take note of, as you see in Deuteronomy chapter 4. That same law, God says through Moses, was given to Israel for their good always. Now let me ask you, was obedience to that law good for Israel, but bad for the Gentiles? Right? So if Israel kept the Ten Commandments, there would be abundant blessings. But if America were to actually get serious about the Ten Commandments, that, that just wouldn't work out well. That, that would be a bad thing, right? Is, is that our position? Is that what we think? See, for some reason what happens is th- these conversations break down and people start saying, well, what you're saying is that America is the chosen nation like Old Testament Israel. No, I'm just saying that the law that God gave to Israel was a blessing to them, an example to the other nations of the ancient world, and it makes sense that the same law would be a blessing to us. I mean, why, why does that not follow? We're not denying that there are unique aspects to Old Testament Israel. What we are affirming is that repeatedly in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, the Lord sets before Israel life and death, blessing and cursing, and the way of life is found through faith and obedience. So rather than reading from Deuteronomy 28, let me just turn back to Deuteronomy 10 for a second. I'll illustrate this here and then we'll go on for the sake of time. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Well, what is God asking of Israel that is so impossible, that's so unique? Now, Israel is unique, yes, in the plan and purpose of God, but what is God asking Israel to do that is so outside the, the ordinary, so beyond the pale, that there's no 
place for even considering the same kinds of blessing coming to other nations. Moses says, Israel, what God wants you to do is to fear him and to love him and to obey him. That's it. That's it. It's not that complicated. That's that's what Micah says many years later in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What is so hard about this? And do you think that that would be a blessing for Israel, but somehow it would not be a blessing for other nations? Well, in fact, the rest of Scripture seems to suggest that it would, in fact, be a blessing to any nation. As Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. It doesn't exalt Israel. It exalts nations. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So how is God going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth? How is he going to bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth? How is Abraham's offspring going to fill the earth and ultimately subdue it so that they possess the gate of their enemies? It's going to happen the same way that it was supposed to happen in Israel, through faith. Through faith. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because that's man's whole duty. And it doesn't matter if he's a Jewish man or a Gentile man. It doesn't matter if he's a garbage man or if he's the president of the United States. Man's all is to fear God and keep his commandments. And God promises a blessing to nations who acknowledge that. And then in the Davidic covenant, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord makes promises to David as well. In 2 Samuel 7... David is offering to build a temple for the Lord, which the Lord says, first of all, thanks, thanks, but I didn't ask you to do that. Uh, you just stick with doing what I ask you to do and don't try to get creative. And then he says, you're not going to build me a house, but I am going to build you a house. He says in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Every dispensationalist knows, by the way, that that Davidic promise is fulfilled by Jesus. Every single one. But wouldn't that be a non-literal interpretation? Because God says... It's David's throne. It's David's kingdom. And it will be an everlasting kingdom. And oh, by the way, the the things that are said here cannot be fully um, met, the the obligations, the expectations of that promise, fully satisfied by Solomon or Rehoboam or Hezekiah or Josiah or any other king of the southern kingdom. And in fact, that southern kingdom is destroyed and that promise seems to fall to the ground except that it doesn't because Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and he will subdue all enemies under his feet as we'll see next week or a couple of weeks when we get to the New Testament expectations. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He's going to possess the gates of his enemies and the last one he's going to put down is death. It's a direct fulfillment of this promise that began not with David, not with Israel, not even with Abraham, but at creation in Genesis chapter 1. We should see this promise in the context of the creation mandate. We should see that the promises and prophecies of the rest of the Old Testament help to flesh it out. We should see that the great commission of Christ after His resurrection gives us the marching orders for its fulfillment. 
But this promise is incompatible with the premillennial conception of a future earthly kingdom. And I would argue that it is not ultimately fulfilled by a strictly spiritual kingdom either that is composed only of elect remnants of representatives while most of the world remains under the control of the evil one. I, don't, I, I mean, I, I fought that for many years, but I, but I don't see how you would reconcile that. If most of the world remains under the control of the evil one, how are these promises given to Abraham, to Israel, and to David actually fulfilled? We haven't filled the earth. We haven't subdued the earth. We've just gotten the elect people that God chose out of the earth. But that's a different promise. That's a different view of the future. I think these promises are best understood in relation to an optimistic and post-millennial conception. Now, we're going to focus on some of the Psalms and the Prophets. Some of you who listened to the Bonson Conference might remember that um, I gave a lecture on this topic in which I primarily focused on two passages from the Psalms, two passages from the Prophets. I'm going to cite many more uh, here today, but that lecture might be another one to look up online and uh, might have something profitable to you. First of all, let's start with Psalm 2. Let's go over to Psalm 2. I want to read the entirety of it. Uh, Because if I only have one psalm to share with you, it might be this one. Psalm 2 begins in this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king... On my holy hill of Zion. Do you see that in relation to the promises that we just read to to Adam, to Noah, to Moses, to David? I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Now the New Testament actually authoritatively interprets verse 7 for us. Paul in his sermon in Antioch of Pisidia says that when Psalm 2 announces, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, the reference is to the resurrection of Jesus. And I've given you the... Cross-references for that in your study guide. You can look that up later. Paul says definitively, that's the resurrection of Jesus. It's not his birth in Bethlehem. It's not his incarnation in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It is the resurrection of Jesus, which is the declaration that he is the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness. Right? That's the resurrection of Christ. And what follows the resurrection of Christ? Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. What does Jesus say after his resurrection? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, Dr. Bonson used to say, do we suppose that Jesus didn't ask for them? That the Father offers, and he says, I will give you all of the nations and the ends of the world, and and the Son says, thanks anyway, I'm fine. I'll just be content with what I have here. Like these 120, I'm good to go, right? Do you suppose that Jesus didn't ask? Well, no. He says, I have all authority to the ends of the earth, in heaven and on earth. Go, disciple them. Go and teach them to obey me. He will rule the nations. He will judge the nations. 
the nations are called to bow before him. And they are promised that they will be blessed insofar as they do. The expectation of Psalm 2 is that kings and magistrates will be taught to honor the anointed one of Yahweh, who is Christ, the king on Zion's holy hill. That's part of gospel ministry. That should be part of our expectation. And our expectation should be that those kings will one day hear. And we'll see that as we go further. Now go over to Psalm 22 for just a second. Psalm 22, we have so explicit a description of Christ's crucifixion that some people have referred to this as the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. But I want you to notice in verse 27, beginning, what follows the crucifixion and resurrection in this psalm. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and He rules over the nations." All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. What's the promise? All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to a general morality taught by natural law. Nope. Turn to Yahweh. They will remember what? The everlasting covenant referred to by Isaiah, referred to by Hosea, seen in Genesis 1 and 2. The covenantal relationship that they have to their maker that is acknowledged in Romans chapter 1 and 2, that they know God but deny Him, suppressing that knowledge by their unrighteousness. All the families of the nations shall worship you. Why? Because the kingdom belongs to Yahweh and He rules over the nations. This hymn, this promise, this prayer is about the ultimate conquest of the world by the faith of Jesus Christ. They will come to know Yahweh, the true God, not just, not just Allah, not just one God by many different names. They will know the true God and they will worship Him. And it is the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus that secures those blessings. And I want you to notice that the promise here in Psalm 22 and many other texts that we could and will look at does not promise this kind of global conversion by means of government or by means of the sword or by means of coercion. It's by gospel ministry. It's by gospel witness. It doesn't promise that every person is going to have personal faith. It doesn't promise that every person is going to be regenerated. But it does say the ends of the world will remember and turn to the Lord. Not one or two people at the far reaches of the world, but rather the ends of the world and all families of the people, they will come to know God. They will worship Christ. Psalm 66 and 67, Psalm 67 being one that we often uh, sing and pray, and Psalm 66, one that we often refer to in other contexts. Psalm 66 verses 3 and 4 says, Say to God, how awesome are your works! Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Now, do we believe that that's going to happen once Jesus casts most of the world into hell? And then finally, in the new heavens and earth, not this present world, not this world, but in some world, somewhere, people are going to worship God. Is that, is that what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 66? All the earth shall worship you. All the earth shall. Now, you say, well, well, but pastor, maybe that's poetic. Okay, well, fine, fine. What does it mean? 
Well, maybe, maybe it's kind of, kind of figurative. It's symbolic language. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine. What does the symbol mean? When I say it's raining cats and dogs, I mean it's raining really hard. What do you mean when you say all the earth is one day going to worship God? Or Psalm 67. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. This is the ironic benediction, right? This is the ironic blessing. That your way may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. Deuteronomic blessing. It comes in response to what? Faith and obedience. What happens when a nation gets serious about worshiping the Lord? God blesses it. No, that's not health and wealth, prosperity, heresy. That's just a simple pattern. God promises to bless those who believe in Him and obey Him. Some 30, some 60, some 100. It doesn't always look exactly the same. And yes, the righteous sometimes suffer. We've got the book of Job in our Bible. But, but like all of the qualifiers you want to put on this, what does it say? It says the peoples are going to praise God and God will bless them. And what will that mean? I mean do you think the world's going to get worse when the, when the nations begin to worship Jesus? Or as we're going to ask in a future lesson, if you had to guess, apart from, what, from any knowledge of what the Bible says, if you had to guess, would you assume that the coming of the Son of God into the world to suffer and die for the sins of His people, would you assume that that would make things better or worse? I mean, is this going to have a detrimental effect when all the peoples praise God? God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. When is that going to happen? Is it going to be in a future millennium? Is it going to be after the second coming? Is it going to be in the eternal state after this world has been destroyed? Does this language only represent an elect remnant from among all nations who will worship? Or does the text mean something more? And, and I would point out, one of the things that, that I, I only see now in retrospect but when I was all-millennial in my thinking, even when I was an optimistic all-millennialist, right, sliding down the slippery slope to the insanity of post-millennialism, um, I did not take seriously the, the statements of promise about nations. Every time I saw promises about nations, I, I read that as people in nations, people among the nations, some people from nations. That's how I always read. I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't realize I was doing that. But in, in retrospect, I realized that's what I was doing. That every time Scripture would disciple the nations meant disciple some people from each nation. Disciple as many people as you can get out of that nation. But you're not actually discipling the nation. You're discipling citizens of each nation. But that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says nations are going to believe. Nations are going to remember. Nations are going to bow. Nations are going to praise. Psalm 72, uh, a psalm that should be read in its entirety, but I'll just read verses 8 through 17. Speaking of Christ, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When? Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Which enemies are those? Are those the handful of enemies that get converted, that lick the dust in obeisance? Or is that all of the enemies who are still enemies who are now subjugated? Is this talking about the world being subdued to the king? And would that be the world as it presently stands that supposedly is always going to be under the sway of the wicked one until Jesus comes back? 
The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. Could I just pause here for a second and say, if you think that, well, well, well yes, the, the kings will fall down before him on judgment day. That's true. It will happen then. But if this is referring to judgment day, then when is it that all of the nations are serving him? Because when the kings bow before him in judgment day, it's going to be preparatory either to being welcomed into the everlasting kingdom or cast into hell. So if this is talking about judgment day, when is it that all the nations are serving him and that he is hearing the cries of the needy? That's in the new heavens and earth when he's relieving the suffering of his still suffering people. He will hear their cries and save them. Then there will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. Those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. All nations when and where can we sing and pray these words about our King Jesus Is this a vain prayer? Is this the kind of prayer that Scripture actually tells us not to pray? That we are not to ask unless we ask in faith. And so maybe that means we can't sing Psalm 72. Now Christ has dominion everywhere as every amillennialist confesses. And I don't want to downplay that at all. But does anyone know that he has all authority everywhere? And will they ever know it? When will all nations finally call him blessed? Will it only be when he comes to judge the world and condemn them all. Psalm 82, Psalm 86, Psalm 82, 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. I, I thought we were praying, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, and bring the present earth to an end, and bring us into the eternal state. But instead it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. That's, we're supposed to be praying for that coming. Not just the final coming, not just the second coming. We're supposed to be praying for... The Lord's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Psalm 86, verse 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship you, shall worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. It doesn't just say that they ought to do that. It says that they will do that. And it says that repeatedly. Psalm 102, 15. So the nations shall fear the name of Yahweh and all the kings of the earth, your glory. Evildoers don't remain in power. The church becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth while the city of man and the kingdoms of this world are shaken until only the unshakable remains. That's the picture. And we get this over and over and over. And again, tonight is not a comprehensive, exhaustive study of all of those ideas. That's why we've got 15 parts to this series is because we're going to talk about many different aspects of this and many different passages and the way that they inform our understanding of all of these promises. I'm just asking you tonight to consider what is the straightforward sense of these promises. What would you think if you're reading Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 22... If you're reading Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 28, if you're reading 2 Samuel 7, if you're reading the Psalms, if you're reading the prophets, what would you you think that they're talking about? 
All of Christ's enemies will be subjected to them. But will they be subjected all at once or gradually? You know, the Bible actually gives us an answer to that that we're going to see as we continue this study. What does Scripture tell us about the order of their subjugation? We know that Psalm 110 says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But the amillennialist, the historic premillennialist, believes that that subjugation is going to happen at one point in time in a catastrophic fashion. There's going to be a cataclysmic event, a coming that will subdue all of the enemies. But is that how the Bible describes it? When we come to the New Testament, is that the picture of the kingdom that we have where it's like leaven hidden in a lump of dough that gradually leavens the entire lump? Is it like the field that gradually grows so that the wheat outnumbers the tares even though the tares are still mixed in? Is it the rock cut out without hands that grows into a mountain and then the mountain grows until it fills the earth and finally everything else is subdued? If death is the last enemy to be put down, then when in this sequence are the kings of the earth going to bow the knee and worship Christ? See, as an amillennialist, I believe that Jesus would return, raise the dead, bring us to final judgment, and then all of the kings of the earth would bow. But that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says death is the last enemy to bow. And that means the kings have already bowed at the final resurrection. You cannot sing and pray these psalms over and over, day after day, year after year, and not be impacted by them. I was very happy being an amillennialist, expecting and hoping that any day Jesus would show up and take us all to glory. I expected people to believe the gospel and to be saved, but I thought that there would be little global and cultural transformation as a result of the Great Commission. The Great Commission was about finding the elect. It was about bringing people to Christ. It was not about changing the world. But it was praying the Psalms over many years that changed my mind without me even knowing it. That's what I said at the Bonson Conference, and that's what I would continue to say now. I think if you just spend a lot of time in the Psalter, you are going to begin to see your prayers reflecting a more optimistic eschatology, even if you, like me, are saying, I'm not a post-millennialist. But you pray like one because you're learning to pray biblically. All right, our time is basically done, but let me just point you to a couple of things and, and then I'll, I'll figure out what I'm going to do next week because we really do have like half of our material still. Um, in the prophets, I've given you some sample references, and this really is just a, this is like the sampler appetizer, right, that the restaurant brings and the sampler platter is always a bad idea because it allows you to find the appetizer that you actually wish you'd ordered and there's not enough of it, right? So this is just giving you a taste and there's so much more goodness in each one of these prophets that is beyond the scope of these notes, but at least to whet your appetite. Uh, Several from Isaiah that you will be familiar with, uh, some important information from Daniel 2 and and 7 especially, the language that Habakkuk uh, speaks in echoing Isaiah 11, by the way, this is found in both Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2, that the earth will be filled not with the glory of the Lord, that's not what the Bible promises, the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. The knowledge of the glory of Yahweh, not some ambiguous deity character, not some higher power, not some undesignated entity. The earth will be filled with the knowledge, that's a personal, covenantal, intimate term in Scripture, the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. 
Zephaniah, Zechariah, uh, Malachi. We will, we will touch on all of those. Um, but let me, just, let me just skip down to the summary because I think even what we've covered tonight would allow us to speak uh, to these three points and then we'll flesh it out further uh, in the prophets uh, next week. What do these Old Testament promises and prophecies mean? I, I would suggest three things. One, that the once good creation will be redeemed and the work of the serpent overcome by Christ. Now you can say, don't you mean has been redeemed and has been overcome? In one sense, yes, absolutely. But remember that it is Paul in Romans chapter 16 that says, the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. And he's writing that a long time after the resurrection. So it's already but not yet. Yes, the dragon has received a mortal wound. Yes, he has been cast down. Yes, he knows that his time is short, Revelation 12 says. No, he's not dead. He's still thrashing around. He has been vanquished, but he is still dangerous. And there is still work to be done. That's why the kingdom is compared to leaven and not to some kind of cataclysm. Secondly, the covenant made with Abraham will, be, will bring blessings to all nations by the rule of David's son. You could say, well, pastor, isn't it already doing that in one sense? Doesn't Paul say twice in Colossians 1 that in his lifetime, in his generation, the gospel had been preached to the whole known world? Yes, yes, in one sense, that's true. But surely you realize that right now the nations are not obedient to Jesus Christ. I mean, you don't have to look beyond your own nation. We are flying pride flags at foreign embassies. We are celebrating perversity. We are not upholding justice. We are platforming and promoting abominations. And that's to say nothing about the extraordinary... I'm like, what other nation would you want to live in, by the way? As awful as things are here, like, where would you want to live? The nations are not obedient to Christ. The nations are not all blessed through the rule of David's son. There may be people from the nations that are blessed, but the nations are not. The promise of Scripture is that one day they will be. And then third, Yahweh will be acknowledged as king by all the nations who will one day turn to him in faith, worship him as the true God, and render obedience to him as the sovereign Lord. And if you say, Pastor, where are you getting all of that? All of the passages that I just read to you over the last hour. And you can reread them again. And dozens of others like them that are in your Bible. And you can tell me that's not the straightforward reading. I'm open to that. I really am. I really am. I I have no, no skin in this game. I've been wrong about so many things in my life, I would be perfectly happy to admit that I'm wrong about something else. But, but it seems to be the straightforward reading. Anyone, let me, let me say this and then we'll finish with prayer and, and Q&A. Any one of these passages, I think some of them would be a little more difficult than others, but let's just say, to be charitable, any one of these passages you could take and you could offer an alternative explanation. Sure. Right? This, one, this one's poetic. This one, this is just figurative. This one, it could be fulfilled by a, 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 you know, a kind of a historic premillennial Conception, this one you could, you could interpret in terms of a spiritualized kingdom that doesn't really have an earthly manifestation other than uh, uh, you know, the church. Yeah, any, any one of these passages, maybe you could do that. But do you see the weight of evidence? Do you see the general tenor and trajectory of the Hebrew Bible lends itself overwhelmingly 
to an optimistic eschatology. I, I said that was the last thing. There is one other thing I realized. I, maybe I clarified this last week, but if I didn't, I need to tonight. When I say optimistic eschatology, I do not mean that every amillennialist, every premillennialist, everyone other than a postmillennialist is pessimistic. I am referring to eschatological optimism about the future of the present world. Every Orthodox Christian is optimistic that Jesus wins in the end. Every Orthodox Christian is happy about the fact that Jesus returns, raises the dead, and ushers in the eternal state. So when I talk about an optimistic eschatology, I'm not ta- I, and, and this is important because after the Bonson Conference, I had people reach out to me that were very concerned about you know, these, these positions that I was taking. And one of them insisted, I'm very optimistic. I said, great, but that's not, that's not the kind of optimism we're talking about. I'm not talking about the optimism that says evil is going to persist. The world will lie under the sway of the wicked one. The church will always be the church in the wilderness and the church in exile. And the world globally will not seem to culturally change. But Jesus wins in the end. Great. That's not the kind of optimism I have in mind. I'm talking about the optimism that I have about you, about me. And that is that the longer we are in Christ, the more we die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The more our sanctification progresses. God could fix that cataclysmically in a moment in time. We certainly wish that he would. But that's not the way he chooses to work. And what this optimistic post-millennial scheme essentially says is that God is going to sanctify the world the same way that he is sanctifying the church, the same way that he is sanctifying every member of the church. And that is gradually, but inevitably, and ultimately, consummately, in the new heavens and earth. All right? So that's our, that's our study tonight. That's our time.